Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to the very first uh, edition of In Conversation with Changemakers. And this is my opportunity to sit down with individuals or uh, companies that I've had the pleasure of working with over the years or have been following over the years that I genuinely believe have an impact and, and change on our communities, our, our businesses, our, our government education systems. So uh, I'm really, really pleased to announce the, the first change makers of, of this series, uh, Corey and James from Innovation Arts. Uh, good afternoon, Corey and James. Thank you very much for joining me today. Hey, Lily, how are you? Hi, Lily. <laughs> and we're, we're keeping this very real and raw, so no, no frills. So, Corey, it looks like you're in your living room and there's children around it, would seem. You can see my arm waves like a bit of a windmill intermittently. <laughs> it's the lockdown wave. It's a, it's a lockdown wave. That's my lockdown wave that I've been practicing. Um, so I'm going to start off um, with, you know, a, a question that um, I'm, I'm sure that everyone's front of mind, and that's what inspired you to create Innovation Oz? I'm going to flick that to you, James. Uh, look, I, I mean, look, I've been a, a journalist for a long time. I, I guess you just, I was a technology journalist. Um, I uh, had always written about uh, the tech industry. Um, look, since very early on in my career, I just, was just interested in industry policy. Like I, I always had this thing in my head that Australian companies could be doing better than, than they were doing. Um, in particular around, you know, my personal bugbear is around um, government procurement policy and around some government policies that can help, uh, you know, local companies compete um, in global markets. So anyway, so since very early in my career, I was interested in those issues. Um, and then I, I found myself in a place where uh, I had an opportunity to, um, you know, to pursue that in a very niche market way. Um, obviously, publishing has changed radically. Uh, I, I had, you know, I'd spent time in my career in um in uh, industry magazines, uh, in technology sections of newspapers. But it was at a time when um, The Australian was doing 50 and 60 broadsheet pages of tech. It was crazy. Um, but obviously those, those days are, are well past. Um, and the tech itself has enabled this pro proliferation of deep niche publishing. And that's what we are. We cover a very narrow, uh, narrowly focused area of subject matter. Um, and you know, good for me because I'm I'm interested in it. And and we found that um, there's an audience for it. So there we are. Oh, and I, you know, look, I, I should mention my publisher is is also my wife. So, um, <laughs> I yeah. Uh, good of you to give her a mention there. <laughs> was able to arm, arm twist her. <laughs> I I could arm twist her in in a way, and uh, you know, I I'm. The editorial side of this business and, and Corey is the publisher commercial side um, and that you know that in itself has worked quite well. Yeah and I'll just say look from my perspective I think when Innovation Oz launched I had run a comms company for probably 11 years by that stage maybe 12 and I really was feeling the pinch that sort of the the triumvirate if you like of clients, staff and the declining media landscape was really 
I mean, everyone was trying to plan what's next. How do we work around this? Where you can see there's sort of diminishing returns on. Um, and at the same time, I guess the opportunity was you could see a little bit of a vacuum in the experience in the tech sector. Um, and it was a little bit of a kind of a hypothesis that if we've sort of been racing towards this kind of, you know, click through like the the, the market-driven journalism was really creating a, what I would see as a bit of a distortion of the quality of journalism. I think we've seen that all over the world. And it was, I guess, starting, you know, Innovation Oz, and obviously James was passionate about it, and I had known him in a previous life, and there's a lot of respect for um, the old-school journalism. And I guess the, the thesis was, if we invest in this, what will happen? And um, it was kind of a little bit of a hunch, and um, I think it's been – it's probably taken a lot longer to – pan out than what any of us would have thought but it's definitely been an important and worthwhile journey I'd say. Yeah yeah and, and I'm, I'm delighted for it because it, it, it's great to have that in you know that independence and that viewpoint and uh, keep us all honest I think. Um, so I mean I guess James you, you've touched on it already but you know in regards to um, some of the biggest changes that you're seeing in government policy currently that impact innovation and tech I'll just take a moment to think about it, but I suppose in at any stage when you're talking about industrial policy or industrial policy, you know, whether it's focused at the manufacturing sector or, you know, biotech or, or information technology, which I tend to to steer towards, um, it's access, it, it really just is three things, access to capital, access to markets, access to skills. So have we got the people? Have we got the money? Have we got the markets to go to? Um, so th there's, to a, a greater or a lesser degree, an emphasis on each of those. Um, I suppose, uh, well, there's a couple of things I would say. Um, one, one is, I'll, I'll just say the National Innovation and Science Agenda, so Malcolm Turnbull's Ideas Boom of 2015, it, it kind of, you know, it's had mixed reviews over the years, but I think you would definitely say that was the line where things started to get interesting in this country. Um, I know that uh, the focus on innovation policy kind of went off the boil uh, after the 2016 election, but that baseline um, of interest that the ideas boom created um, is a really, really a, a line of before and after moment in um in industrial policy in the tech in our tech sector, so so that's interesting. Now, one of those areas that was incredibly successful, I think, is in um, venture capital or early stage capital, and, and certain policies that were enabled then. Um, you know, capital gains tax free on on certain kinds of um, venture capital funds enabled a huge amount of money to be to be raised. Hugely successful. There were some skills policy that that were also you know that have demonstrably been very successful in enabling um, very high level, uh, you know, very high level skills to get into the country. Um, look, and to enable, you know, returning Australians to to um, land in a market that was way more interesting than it was pre-2015. So we have that ecosystem, you know, that policy directed towards ecosystem rather than, um, you know, individual levers. Uh, I don't know, most important policy now, I suppose, again, access to skills. Yeah. Borders are shut. It's hard to get people. Um, and they're reviewing the, the venture capital um, arrangements now. Uh, so 
we're, we're unsure where, where that will land. And you say that as well, James, but the, the, you know, even pre-borders being shut, the access to skills has always been one that's um, been highly contested uh, around, you know, changes to 457 visas um, and what that's meant to the industry. So, you know, I think it, it, it's been a challenge or something that's been highly discussed even before the borders um, being closed and, 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 you know, really hampering that issue. Can I add to everything that James has just said? And I'd say the most important thing right now is not what policy, it's just consistency of policy. I think, I think just to play a long game, we know, particularly when we're talking about some of the industrial policy stuff that James is talking about, whether it's advanced manufacturing or quantum or all of these really exciting areas, these are not two and three years. These don't flip from election cycle to election cycle. Having an, having an ability to kind of be able to comfortably understand a direction from a policy perspective in five and 10-year blocks, I think would be very welcome. You might not agree with it, but at least you can you know, accommodate the direction. I think uh, I had a very senior, uh, well, uh, the chief executive of a, um, a, a government-owned not-for-profit, which is involved in the, you know, the innovation space, call me at the latest change of um, industry minister at the federal level. Obviously, Christian Porter was appointed, and he said they don't even bother calling them calling the ministers by their actual names. They uh, uh, Karen Andrews was M7 because she was the seventh that this person had dealt with, and uh, Christian Ford is M8. <laughs> yeah, and I guess, I guess it, that that brings on to my next question in regards to, um, when we say innovation, what do we actually really mean, and 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 what are some of the biggest challenges um, facing innovation in tech in Australia? Because I think you know the you know innovation became very fashionable, right? You know it was the big sort of a ticket item it was a big thing that we could kind of do um but what does it actually really mean and what are some of the challenges well it is a very elastic term there is there's no doubt about that i guess look from the innovation oz point of view we we had a, a very definite set of um readers that we had in mind i mean not readers like this this kind of who's who's our not target audience but when we talk about you know building a strong australian industry i guess you know, the people we had in mind were company. You know, companies that um, produced their own IP uh, had either the potential or actual um, ability to export product, um, had real revenues, and also who very likely had either worked with institutional research or had taken institutional research out of um, uh, out of the institution and, and commercialised it. So th- those are some of the criteria that that we look at, but um, definitely building your own IP or translating your own IP. Corey will have more to say on this. Well, I'm, I've been going through the, um, you know, some of the government grant recipients and obviously there's a lot of due diligence from some of these companies in terms of getting awarded a grant and some of those companies and there are hundreds of them, thousands of them, are doing the most interesting work, solving the most interesting problems. And they're not companies you'd ever really hear about because they really are, you know, head down, bum up. So those companies that are innovative are really taking technology and applying them to solving really interesting problems. And the stuff that I get excited about is the the cross-disciplinary stuff. Where do we have really strong capability and where are we marrying that into new sectors? So, you know, I carry on all about MET sector, the 
all the technology that's built off the back of our very successful mining industry, how do we apply it to space and ag tech and, you know, the IoT component and remote access. So there's so many amazing stories of where we're taking really deep pools of intellectual property and solving problems that are just, um, you know, they're pulling sharper into focus every day, particularly with the sovereign capability, the food bowl of Asia, all of these things we talk about take constant, a constant review of the way we're solving the challenges. So I, I get pretty excited because there's a lot of stuff that at the moment doesn't bubble up into our popular into our public consciousness that really should. And I think that's something that keeps me energised. Yeah, and I think that that point, Corey, around um, using tech to, to solve a particular problem, and it's I think people don't sometimes consider that to be innovation. They always think innovation needs to be some new widget that someone's developing in a garage somewhere, uh, as opposed to the using technology to solve problems. Yeah. So I, mean, I guess, I mean, James, we, we've, we've touched on the, the, the pandemic and the impact it's had on access to skills. Um, but, you know, do you see it's changed anyway, you know, the, the way that new tech is coming to market at all? Has it had any impact on that side of things? Oh, well, I guess, I mean, I think every Zoom call on, on technology has, uh, has remarked on the fact how everything has accelerated and digital transformation has accelerated. Um, and and look, it, it certainly has. Uh, look, just off the top of my head, I, I think an interesting space to watch will be in government service delivery. It sounds incredibly dull and boring, but I think um, the the pandemic will have had um, an incredible impact on the way that uh, citizens interact with government. Um, I spoke recently with Victor Dominello, who was going through some of the um, changes that have been made at uh, Service New South Wales, or some of the products that have been put forward at Service New South Wales, um, particularly around, it sounds very strange, but the, the Dine and Discover vouchers. Now, to, to qualify for a Dine and Discover vouchers, for readers, you know, you, you, could, you could, you know, order a takeaway meal with a dining voucher or you could go to, I don't know, a wildlife park. Yeah, yeah. So, so it was a great thing, but you had to, you know, you had to prove that you were a New South Wales citizen, and to do that, you you gave them a uh, hundred points. Now, when you combine that uh, Dine and Discover plus the, the the Tell Us Once capability, so you know, once you've told Service New South Wales, they're not going to keep asking you for the same information. So you've given them the hundred points. Um, so suddenly, that Service New South Wales app has identified you as an individual, then suddenly it, the ability to serve different um, government services you very easily and simply um, is, is in place. And look, it's not something people think about, but um, 5 million people downloaded down and Dine and Discover. So this New South Wales government, instead of having like 50 different departments and agencies, each offering 10 different services and having to connect with that user, that app uh, is, is now super easy. Apparently, the um, engagement with even the digital driver's licence, once people had done Dine and Discover, a mass uh, followed across to do digital driver's licence. Yeah, I was one of them. <laughs> yeah. Well, pre, pre-pandemic, I mean, it's, I, mean I, I did have a digital driving licence already, um, and, but, you know, I could have asked 10 friends um, if they knew Service New South Wales or they had an app and nine would have said no, one maybe. Uh, and, and now, like, everybody interacts, you know, it's, it, it's, it's like fish and chips. 
Yeah, I'm English. Uh, but you know, everybody knows, of course, everyone knows that New South Wales. Yeah, and I think, look, and genuinely, you know, over the years, I think Service New South Wales was started in 2013-14, so it's been, a, you know, a bit of a journey, as they as they say. And all the way along that journey, uh, the, the reps from Service New South Wales and Victor Dominello himself has been talking about, oh, we've got to get public services to, you know, match the private sector services that you get with online banking. Well, they did that with, you know, who they bought in, the original people they brought in. Glenn King, you know, the, you know ex-banking. Um, you know, they, they knew that from the beginning, right? That's right. And I think um, even at the highest levels in New South Wales, the highest levels of government, right from, you know, Barry O'Farrell at the start and like Ben and now Gladys have, have, have had an interest in seeing this through. And obviously Dominic Perrottet has been a, with Victor Dominello, have been, um, you know, political advocates for, for, you know, for tech. So I guess at a state at a state level, there's been that consistency that you were mentioning, Corey. That's important uh, in regards to the you know continuum of these types of initiatives. Yeah, I think uh, um, you know the federal government's probably had some greater difficulty uh, than the states in in this area. But um, we watch with interest. We watch with interest. Mm. I guess, I mean, the, 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 the other area where I've seen um, a, a massive leap um, in, I guess, barriers that have previously been there would be in health. Uh, like telehealth has been, a, you know, a, a discussion and a topic forever, right? And then, you know, a pandemic happens and all of a sudden those things that we couldn't do, uh, we, we can do almost overnight. So, you know, and I think now people have had that experience in regards to variety in how they access health services and healthcare providers. Do you see that's something that will continue over time? I, I was interested in the first, like four months probably of last year through COVID where suddenly all of these things that were really difficult became really simple and, and renewing a script and having to go to the doctor. Like, you know, oh, you can do that. It's not that hard. And there, there are many examples which made us actually kind of go, oh, okay. It's it's when you sort of get shaken out of the thinking patterns. And when talking about innovation, you're asking earlier, like, what is it? But, and I hope one of the enduring sort of, you know, outcomes of something like COVID is that people did get sort of a bit shaken out of their ways of thinking that might, and I, it was just, I don't want to th- you would hope that by looking at things you take for granted, we think about in a certain way. If if a percentage of the population will look at things through new eyes, I mean, hopefully that will create, you know, different ways we look at the problems that we solve and the fact that they're actually really not big problems and a sense of energy and ambition. I don't. I hope we don't snap back to relaxation mode, as is sometimes what Australia's can be characterised as being in. I don't think anyone's going to be able to relax for a while yet. So. So we're all good. <laughs> that, that, that's a whole new different conversation, right? We, I think we could spend an hour talking about that. Um, I mean, I guess, you know, what, one of the biggest, and we, you know, we, we've talked, spoken about it offline, but, you know, one of the biggest challenges with, um, you know, COVID is our, you know, ability to, to network, you know, and we, 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 you know, we've all become creatures of habit and relied on that on a way to engage effectively. Um, that, so I guess, you know, are you seeing uh, effective leaders in innovation coming together in a meaningful way in the, in the current climate? Or how are they coming together in a meaningful way? Oh, this is, I'm a bit vexed on this one. I, I Look, I have been involved in conversations over the past 18 months where I think people's 
that there is a, a tendency for people to kind of look at what they can get rather than what they can bring. And I think that if we're truly going to do things differently, when our time is scarce, our ability to meet in person is scarce, when I think a fundamental rethink of what networking means and you know, in terms of what value can I offer? What do I have right now? If we're in crisis mode, what am I bringing? Who, how am I creating better quality networks between people I know? What am I bringing? What am I offering? I think I, I would like to see more of that. I think it, it, the, it is a time like this where the kind of generosity of networking is even more important. And it's kind of hard to put your finger on, but I think you know people in your own life that do that naturally. And they're the people that when the chips are down, you gravitate towards uplifting. So that's just a, sounds very philosophical, but I think it's true. Yeah, no, agreed, agreed. I, I look, I, I mean, I would add very specifically on how, how the industry responded to COVID and there were, you know, very genuine efforts for different parts of the, um, you know, tech landscape, the different kind of industry groups uh, to come together um, for common purpose. But, you know, it kind of, it fractured back into these siloed areas of, I'm not going to say self-interest, but, you know, these different industry groups have different stakeholders and they, you know, they, they kind of, you know, without wishing to be unfair, because there was a lot of genuine goodwill, um, did kind of break back to type fairly, fairly quickly, which was, I don't know, it's, I don't know if it's unfortunate or, or, or not, but the certainly the the goals for creating um, a, a unified voice of the industry to government, uh, you know, didn't quite pan out. And, and I think, you know, it's something to be, to, to be mindful of, um, is making sure that the industry is in, inclusive. Um, I think, you know, what happens uh, when you lose that physical networking capability? You know, you don't have that opportunity to um, to go meet a minister and, and shake his hand in the way that you would in a physical event. Uh, so, you know, in the, in, unless you're being included, um, then you, you miss out and maybe not aware of some of the opportunities um, that are available to you. Luli, I read something the other day which was absolutely spot on and it was, you know, the data that shows your proximity, your physical proximity to your boss as an indicator of how fast you move. And I had been in the um, the, the podcast studio when we were first in the, a lighter lockdown um, with one of my colleagues and I was talking about a role we were hiring. She said, I can do that. I can do that job. And I was like, great, you can do it. Anyway, she now has that job a week later. But I remember thinking that is exactly it. And that's, you know, that's one sort of young woman with a toddler who was there talking to a boss saying, I can do that. Now, imagine those sorts of interactions across all aspects of the workforce and all of the diversity that that includes. It's not nothing. And it's not because she would be unlikely to set up a Zoom call to have a conversation with me that because she might not have heard about it in the first place. And secondly, it's a different thing to set up a call to have a conversation to apply for a job that hasn't actually really been fully mapped out yet. And, and that comes to, first of all, you need to be in the tent to know what's happening and who's in the tent and who's out. It does put lots of focus on exactly that notion of inclusivity. Yeah. So, yeah, I think that's something for us all to be mindful of. But, um, you know, I'm just conscious of time. So I'm going to thank you both for being my first uh, uh, in conversation with Changemakers. And you, you truly are. And, you know, thank you for everything you bring um, every day with Innovation Arts. I look forward to seeing that in my inbox. So continue 
what you're doing. I'm sure uh, there are great things to, to come down the line, uh, and I, for one, look forward to, to reading them. So thank you, Corey and James. Thanks, Lily. Fantastic. Thanks, Lily. It's been lovely to talk with you.